from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Oh, yikes. That was embarrassing. (laughs) Some bad choices in there. You know, we want to have lived 14 lives, and then we get to start adulthood. My agreement was, you're allowed to follow me on Twitter, but you may never mention anything that you see here. Maybe you weren't quite pulling off this look. I don't think I was pulling it off at all. I don't think I ever pulled off a single look I wore throughout elementary school. Okay, you thought that. That's fine that you thought that. But it's not a helpful or healthy thought, so maybe let's think of a different way to respond. And is that because women are more crazy? I'm Sarah Fudsky. Sophia Benoit went from the suburbs of St. Louis to comedy writing in Los Angeles, a sex column in GQ, and a new essay collection. That book is called Well, This is Exhausting, and it made me laugh until I cried. The essays chronicle her journey from being an awkward kid who Googled, how do you have charisma, to finding her way as a writer and a person to follow on Twitter. And she joins us today. Sophia Benoit, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So you grew up in Kirkwood. How was that for you? It was great. I mean, I can't really imagine a better or more idyllic childhood than the suburbs of St. Louis. I feel like it's a wonderful place to grow up. A nice, safe place, green lawns. Yes, lawns everywhere. Now that I'm in L.A., it's (laughs) a lot more brown. Yeah. But so the great angst of your childhood, you write a lot in this book about being fat Mm -hmm. when you were a kid. You write about in fourth grade, your doctor told your mother that you hated yourself. You said you didn't. What was going on there? Why did he think this girl hates herself? Well, I came in to this appointment, and it was an ear, nose, and throat appointment, and I was wearing all black, and I had black nail polish on, and I thought I seemed European because I thought Europeans wore all black. But I was in fourth grade, and my interpretation of Europe through Target and their affordable fashions was um, more tragic, I think. Than you maybe weren't quite pulling off this look. I don't think I was pulling it off at all. I don't think I ever pulled off a single look I wore throughout elementary school. Um, but I think he saw also that I was fat. And I think for a lot of people, there was a connection for them between being overweight and being sad or being self-hating or just a level of... Um, isolation that other people imagined for me. And until he mentioned it to my mom, I even wrote this in the book, I I didn't really imagine you could hate yourself. Mm -hmm. That didn't come up as a concept for me. I just kind of figured you were stuck with yourself. So it just didn't occur to me. And so I think other people really gave me the idea that as a fat kid or as a fat person, you ought to hate yourself. You have a a quote in here. Yeah, this is, I think about my childhood as a fat kid a lot, how I was parented and helped, corrected and cajoled, and what the adults could have done differently. I don't know what the answer is. What I know is this, as a fat person, I became my body and my body became everything. That sounds horrible. Like there was just so much focus on this this outer casing. Yes, yes. It sounds exhausting to use the word from your title. I feel like, and I, I mean, I was very academic and that was a huge focus of my childhood as well. So I feel like I was always kind of trying to prove to people that I wasn't my body in certain ways because there was so much focus on it. And I don't think as a society we do a good job of assuming that people who are overweight have more to them than that. I think we do a pretty bad job, all of us, of just having this assumption that you are your body, you think about your body, it's negative for you. 
And that's not true. If you talk to fat people, it's not true. It's not the only thing they think about. It's not the cornerstone of their life, you know? And do you think if people hadn't made such a big issue of this, that things would have been pretty different for maybe like that 10-year chunk in there? Yeah, I think I, I think... I think it would have been different. I do. I think that there was so much pressure to be thinking about my weight all the time. And maybe it was imagined pressure from on my end. But I, I feel like I succumbed to that. And pretty quickly, it became what I thought about all the time. Mm. And what I ate. And what I did I work out? Did I walk enough? Did I move enough? Was I too lazy? All these things I put on myself because I believed other people were putting them on me as well. And as you say, this was never a matter of hating yourself. You just really enjoyed eating. Oh, I loved eating. I was so into eating. I wasn't I wasn't even an emotional eater. I would go to a therapist and they'd be like, well, when do you eat? And I said, well, all the time. I mean, I mean, also, I will say St. Louis has pretty good food. So it does. I mean, it's, it's a hard great food city. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, I, I miss a lot of the great Italian food here, especially. But, um, but no, I, I loved eating. And my family was full of good cooks, so it was like the best food you could have all the time. It seems like kind of a natural response. I'm yeah. going to enjoy this. <laughs> exactly. But so you ended up losing almost 60 pounds, like very, very quickly. And it was kind of sad to read, like everybody thought this was so great, except your mom. Yes. I, I loved your mom in this book. This is probably because I can more relate to her <laughs> age-wise. Um, but your mom knew this was something had gone wrong here. Yes. I went from being... I mean, I was very overweight, and I probably, for health reasons, it would have been great to eat at least healthier and to do more activity. That's fair. Sure. But um, I think my mom noticed things like I had a hard time concentrating. I was cold all the time. I had no energy. I just I look at photos of myself then, and I even see I looked pale and kind of sickly. And I think for most people around me, they just saw thin and they thought, oh, thank God, you yeah. finally did it. This Aren't you healthy. so happy? Yeah. Yes. I mean, I had multiple doctors who had seen me for years that were like, oh, you finally got your BMI in the zone. And here I was, you know, missing my period or my hair was falling out. And I thought, this isn't health. You know, this is antithetical to what you should want for me. But everyone was so happy. You had a serious eating disorder. Yes. And doctors are telling you, great job. How great awesome job. to lose this weight. I mean, that seems terrifying to me. Like, that is exactly like, I mean, that's the most dangerous thing you can do right there. Yes, and eating disorders are incredibly deadly. I think they rate anorexia as the most deadly mental health problem and struggle. So it's very serious. It's not It's not like that's just something that you go through as a phase. And it's. I think we have this conception that it's this young teenage girl phase and it goes mm -hmm. away and it's fine. But that lasts for people for many, many years, and it can affect your body and your organs for a long time. So you write a lot about how hard it was to be fat, everybody giving you a hard time mm -hmm. about being fat. And then you write about this eating disorder, but you don't really go that in-depth on how you were able to, to break free from that. What was the secret for you to being able to, to let that go? I feel like, and I've thought about this a lot because I've talked to other people who have had eating disorders or, or are in recovery for them. And I think for me, some of it was that it was so, to borrow the word from my title, it was so exhausting to keep up with that level of control of, around everything in my life mm -hmm. that I started to let certain things slide. I would eat a little bit more here, a little bit more there. And I think slowly over time, I realized that that wouldn't kill me to eat a little bit more. This would yeah. be a little healthier. 
And eventually I got to the point where I realized from an internal perspective, this isn't healthy, this isn't going well. And it wasn't like an immediate shut off, but it was starting to see my own behavior and label certain things and be like, Sophia, that's an unhealthy thought. You don't have to follow it up with an unhealthy action. So even now, I still have all kinds of unhealthy thoughts about food and Mm -hmm. I still sometimes feel guilty if I eat a certain thing, but I'm able to kind of step back and say, okay, you thought that, that's fine that you thought that, but it's not a helpful or healthy thought. So maybe let's think of a different way to respond to maybe you're feeling stressed or pressure or you want more control. Um, But I found that it it takes many, many years to re-circuit your brain a little bit to Mm -hmm. get away from feeling like food is a reward or a punishment or starvation is a reward or punishment for things. So reading this book, it's clear that control was a big thing for you. I mean, you were just trying so hard to be perfect for so long. I mean, that manifested itself in some crazy ways. Like you wrote your chapter about when you decided to drink. Um, It just cracked me up because instead of what a lot of us do, you didn't just go hog wild and, and start drinking as a little bit of a late bloomer to that. You kind of pretended you were drinking so that you could fit in. I mean, you wanted to you wanted to be there with the other kids, but you weren't willing to let go just yet. No, I I even now if I go get a massage, they're like, can you relax? Can you relax? And I can't. I have a very hard time letting go of things. So I think in that story of trying to fit in with peers and pouring beer down a basement floor because every party in St. Louis is in a basement. Of course. Yes. And, and that's a perfect place to pour it. Yes. No one will ever notice. The it's already sticky. Yes. The unfinished basement drain is a great place to pour your beer. Uh, and I thought, oh, then I'll at least seem like I'm having a good time and seem like I'm one of these people that can let go. But I clearly couldn't to the point where I couldn't even finish a beer. I couldn't even do it. And I was so afraid of getting drunk and having that be this loss of control that seemed totally frightening to me. So how were you able to finally loosen up a little bit? I really, I I think that the the kind of the thesis of this book is that I put so much pressure on myself and I held on so tightly for so long that in so many ways, everything exploded and it went in the exact opposite direction. And it just, all these parts of my life kind of unfurled in front of me. And I felt like instead of having this tight control on my life, I felt like I was putting out 40 fires at once. And so I think I kind of just had this opposite response, which was, okay, I'm not going to care about anything. I'm going to kind of go strong left, you know, hard left turn, everything. I don't care about it. I don't care if I offend people. I don't care if I hurt someone's feelings. I don't care if men don't like me. I don't care if I'm not hot. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. And it was this explosion, which was so healing for me, even though I look back at it and I see these things and I'm like, oh, yikes, that was embarrassing. <laughs> Some bad choices in yes, there. Bad choices and just ways I wish I would have handled things delicately. But, you know, when you're at your end of your rope, it's that's the time when you react poorly to things. Is You're, you're not usually your most graceful then. So. You almost have to explode. There's such a, a buildup of pressure. Yes. And so I feel like I had that reaction And then it was almost like after a volcano exploded, it was like, okay. And then there was almost this calm 
lightness of an equilibrium that was reached a little later in life. You know? And it feels like you have that now. I mean, what comes across in this book is that you have really found a way to like live with yourself, to be happy with yourself, and to be funny, but not to be so desperate to be funny, which is what you write about doing earlier. Yes, yes. I was. I would describe most of the first 22 years of my life as desperate. <laughs> and, you know, you kind of mourn what you missed out on when you were in that desperate stage. You write, I have spent a surprising amount of time and energy longing for, trying to recreate, and raging against my lost youth. This is very sad to me because you still seem so young to me. <laughs> like, you don't have to rage against your lost youth. You're still in it. I know. I'm. Well, I, I feel like we're all told that your teenage years are this, like, halcyon days of, you know, the Ferris wheel rides and the... The Coke you know, commercial. Yes, the Coke commercial, like kissing on a Ferris wheel from the cute boy in class or like going and parking your car somewhere or whatever. And I feel like we got told these myths of what teenage years are like. And I don't know anyone who really had those, but I feel like we all believe we were supposed to get them and that they were supposed to be a little different than what we did get. And I have to say, most people that I've talked to in my life feel like they missed out on a big chunk of something in their youth. I think a lot of people really feel like, oh, I didn't get exactly what I thought childhood and teenage years were going to be like, or I didn't go to college and live away from home like everyone else did. So I missed this thing. We all have like these crazy high expectations, like this is supposed to be perfect and it's never perfect. And that we could maybe have done everything. Yeah. Everything. You know, we want to have lived 14 lives and then we get to start adulthood and figure out what we really want, you know? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, this level of control you had, in some ways it was it was very damaging to you. You were trying way too hard. On the other hand, you were valedictorian, Kirkwood High School, class <laughs> of 2011. I know there's people listening who are wondering <laughs> this. Um, this got you to where you are today. I mean, do you feel like if you'd let loose a little earlier, you might have completely sabotaged your own life? Oh, totally. I think if the, if the metaphorical volcano had gone off when I was in ninth grade, I would have had a very different path. I think it was kind of good that it happened when it did, which was college. And I, I kind of had this explosion of, you know, anger and hurt and all these things of not being able to control anything. So I'm kind of glad it happened late, but I feel like everyone else had already gone through that at 14 and 15, probably. <laughs> so I do feel like I was a little bit of a late bloomer there. We're talking to Sophia Benoit. She's a Kirkwood native, Kirkwood High School, answering that St. Louis question there. Her book of essays is called Well, This is Exhausting. We've been talking about a lot of serious stuff, but this book is actually exceptionally funny. And you know what? I'm going to prove it to you because I'm going to have Sophia read a short excerpt here. This is from one of the essays in the book. I just feel like Sophia's voice is so inimitable. Like, I want people to hear this for themselves. Uh, this essay is called Exactly the Woman I Thought I'd Be When I Grew Up. And I do want to mention here, this this is somewhat of a radio edit. We asked Sophia to do something that would be would not get us in trouble with the FCC. So if you're somebody who doesn't like a lot of F-bombs, you might notice that uh, the actual essay in the book, just a tiny bit different, but this will still give you <laughs> the flavor of Sophia's writing. I thought I'd be married by now, not because I'm romantic, but because I thought I'd be divorced by now. And in order to be divorced, you must have at some point gotten married. Almost everyone in my family is on their second spouse. Some are up to their third or fourth. I always thought being divorced was glamorous, adult, sophisticated. What could be more grown up than the end of a rocky marriage? To me, it was like owning a car or having a 401k. I thought, I know actually, that I would be a fabulous divorcee. 
I would go through it with Wine and Fleetwood Mac albums, which is not all that dissimilar from how I've gone through my normal life now that I think about it. I thought I'd wear perfume every day like my Aunt Suzanne and that I would clean the house with a kerchief tied around my head like my Aunt Karen. I thought I would have lots of rings. Every adult woman I knew had lots of rings. Looking back, I think the woman in my family just got engaged a lot and therefore owned a lot of redundant jewelry. Also, my Aunt Patty is a jeweler, so perhaps that's the source. Either way, I assumed my fingers would be decked out. As it stands, I think I own three rings that aren't from Target, and I get too nervous to wear them anywhere. I assumed that I'd live in New York City when I grew up. I listened to the Jay-Z and Alicia Keys song, Empire State of Mind, while working out in high school, preparing for my inevitable future in the Big Apple. New York, it seemed, was the place to be if you wanted to be glamorous and wear all black and rush to the subway holding a cup of coffee, which to me was the height of human adult experience. You know the opening of The Devil Wears Prada, where the K.T. Tunstall song plays as a bunch of models get ready for the day? Of course you do. I assumed, not wanted, not desired, assumed, that my life would go like that. That I'd be rolling out of bed with a frame and a heavy white duvet, leaving a hot shirtless guy behind, telling him to let himself out as I put on heeled boots and rushed to catch the F train or something like that. I have no idea what the subway lines are called in New York, and I don't want to spend my life right now looking up which one would make the most sense to reference. And that is from Well, This is Exhausting, the new essay collection from Sophia Benoit, who is my guest today. So much of your writing, it's like the funniest writing on Twitter. And I mean that as a great compliment because I just, I love Twitter. I find it hilarious. And as you point out in the book, it's really kind of pathetic to talk about Twitter uh, and to write about Twitter. Like we should just be on Twitter. Yes. But you're one of the few writers where Twitter has actually been a, a huge positive for you. Twitter kind of launched you. Oh, it completely did. I think every single job that I've had, every single serious job from GQ, and now I write a column for Bustle, and every writing job, this book, all came about through Twitter. I even met my boyfriend from Twitter. Some of my best friends are from Twitter. So as much as I would love to say, don't go on social media, and you know, as much as I would love to protect my younger siblings, and my sister's pregnant and about to have a baby, and I'm like, oh, don't go on social media. But I also think, oh my God, it gave me so much. So it's very hypocritical to to want to keep people off of it, I guess. I mean, it really worked out for you. You joined this back uh, at, at Kirkwood High. You were in a journalism yes. class? Oh, no, uh, this was actually in an AP calculus class. I'm so sorry to Mr. Jonak. I wish I would have been paying more attention to calculus. That probably would have panned out very differently for me. But instead, I was creating a Twitter account in the back of the classroom while everyone else was learning about you know, sine waves or something. I mean, something that I'm, calculus. I'm sure you'd use <laughs> a lot today. Calculus, yes. yeah. Yes, I mean, exactly. Twitter ended up being the thing that you use as an adult, which kind of flips what you might expect yes. on its head. And and as you said, like, your editor from GQ found you. They reached out to you. That never happens to writers. Never. I have gotten so beyond lucky from, and I will say, the thing I did first, which I don't know that it's a good recommendation, is I wrote for free for a lot of places for a long time. And that's and also th- the one thing they tell you never to do. Correct. They tell you never write for free. But I was, I feel like I was so Midwestern about everything where I was like, I don't really know how this works. I'll just, you know, oh, sure, I'll write for free. Yeah, that absolutely. And uh, it ended up working out for me because someone reached out, but I'm not sure that it 
doesn't work for a whole lot of writers. Yes, I don't th- I do not recommend writing for free. <laughs> I feel like you have to be as funny as you are to pull this off. Like for 99% of us, we'd be writing for free. We'd just be giving it away for like two people liking our tweet, <laughs> and that would be very tragic. But this worked out great. So GQ pitched you on writing for them. You must have thought this was a joke, but you at least responded. Yes, I did, and I I've always loved magazines. I wrote my college admissions essay on how much I loved magazines because I still get subscriptions, you know, four or five a month at least of paper magazines, and I've always loved them. So when they reached out, I think my heart stopped. And like you said, I did kind of think it was a joke, because why would GQ want me to write for them? You but know? it wasn't a joke at all. I mean, they have you now writing a, a sex and relationship mm-hmm. column. So you're a Kirkwood girl. Like, how does that go over with your family that you're writing very frankly about a whole lot of stuff that one doesn't always talk about in the Midwest with one's family? Uh, Yes. So early on with my mom, my agreement was you're allowed to follow me on Twitter, but you may never mention anything that you see here, which I don't think she follows that rule, but she tries. And then my father and I have a very tacit agreement that we just don't speak about anything. (laughs) But occasionally he'll bring up something like, oh, I saw you wrote this and uh, I hated it. But he, I mean, he's joking, but. uh, Yeah, but a dad kind of has to feel that way about some of this material. I wouldn't want to read my own child's book. And I feel sorry if I ever do have children that I have written this book, but they'll just have to deal with that with their therapist (laughs) when they're older. So I have to ask you, write uh, at great length in this book about your terrible St. Louis boyfriend, racist family, not a good guy. The greatest thing, you know, I'm sure all of your readers are standing up and cheering when you finally dump this guy. Do you know if he's read this book? I actually got asked by the lawyer for the book if they thought that he would. And they wanted me to change a lot more about the story with him because they it's pretty serious and uh, and heavy topics. And I kept telling them, I really don't think he's a big reader. I don't think he's going to read it. And they were like, that's not a legal defense. You can't say we didn't think he'd read the book. So I had to change a couple details in it. But I don't think he's read it. And I don't. I haven't been contacted by anyone from his family. And so. has your lawyer been contacted by anyone? No, not that we know of, at least. Okay, so this is good. So this, you know, you kind of delve into sort of that first love. You meet the slightly older guy at your after-work job. What would you want St. Louis girl who might be just tuning in to National Public Radio today, hearing this story, what is the advice you would want her to keep in mind? 18 years old, dating that that guy from back home. I think it's really hard to avoid a bad first love. I think it's almost impossible to talk yourself out of it because it's so exciting. But I guess I would say if you dread things or if you find things miserable, that's a bad sign and that's you're a red kidding. flag. That's a sign <laughs> that's you should a break up sign. with someone if you're miserable. If you're miserable. But I would say I think when you're young, you think, oh, it's normal to have doubts and it's normal to wonder if this is the right person. And those are normal, but they're very different than knowing someone is not a match for you at all and never will be. (laughs) Those are worlds apart. It was nice to read. You have some really good perspective on this. Even though this was a bad relationship, you're like, you know what? That first boyfriend is always going to be a bad relationship. Maybe there's some girl out there where that's not the case. But there's hope. Like, you can move on from that, and your life can still be amazing. Yes. Almost every single friend of mine had a bad first boyfriend and moved on from it and has had great relationships. So if you can just make it through the first one and know 
the ending of it won't kill you and you can find someone else. So, Sophia, you're writing um, these advice now. You're doing this for GQ, doing this for other publications. You write that the question you get the most is, am I crazy? And that this question is never coming from men. No, I don't think I've ever had a guy write in and say, am I crazy? And I think from women, it is some version of that is probably the most popular question I get. Am I crazy for staying? Am I crazy for leaving? Am I crazy that I don't put up with this? Am I crazy that I don't want to put up with this? And is that because women are more crazy? I I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I think I think the the reason is is that we're constantly you know, replaying our own behavior back to ourselves and wondering, could I have done it better? Could I have handled this better? Did I make this person uncomfortable? Did I make this person mad? Are these people judging me for this? How does this appear for other people? So I feel like we're always just replaying that and worried that maybe we could have done it better or maybe my boundary is too much or maybe my needs aren't that important. And we're kind of socialized to think that way. And you want women to, to let a lot of that go. I would love for us all to be like, I'm not crazy. It's fine if my boundaries are strong. That's fine. That's normal. But it's very hard to get there. It is hard to get there. And if that man is making you miserable, he's probably not the one. Probably not the one. Probably not. Probably not. Maybe there's an exception out there, but (laughs) probably not. So this book was such a hoot. I really hope people give this a read. It's called Well, This is Exhausting. Uh, Sophia Benoit, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I got to ask just one last question. You thank so many Kirkwood teachers in the back of this book. Are you going to see any of them while they're while you're home? I actually don't have plans to see them, but I have had a couple Facebook messages and it's a little embarrassing, I have to say, to think of your teacher reading a book like this. <laughs> yeah, I would say that's embarrassing, but also how lovely for them to be thanked. Yes. So you know where it all started, all goes back to Kirkwood. Yes. That book is Well, This is Exhausting, Essays by Sophia Benoit. This episode was co-produced by Alex Hoyer and Sarah Fenske, with audio engineering and editing by Aaron Doerr and production assistance from Jane Mather Class. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.